Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Grace Nerds podcast. This will be episode six with my friend Caleb. We tend to do these every Friday night, right about 7.30. And uh, yes, and we have a few topics lined up. Got our usual format going for the most part here. We've got some we've got some uh, movie talk. We're going to be talking about an interesting movie, a slightly different tone uh, than our previous movies, I think you might say. And then we got a little bit of theology trivia, and then we're going to talk about the uh, theology itself, uh, and we'll get into some more specifics about that soon. Um, so let me... Go ahead and roll the intro, and then uh, and then Caleb can say a few words as well. So give me just a moment here. All righty. So how are you this evening, sir? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? pretty good been pretty busy but uh keeping up i think yeah um been a busy week although i haven't yeah. had overtime this week so i'm not as exhausted as i could be <laughs> what have you been up to this week oh i've been working on a couple of things i have been working on a sermon for grace life as well as kind of beginning some preparations for a funeral and uh had an elders meeting this this week at the church so yeah lots of stuff going on nice nice all right so what have, what movies have we covered so far boy we've done five so far we did lord of the rings yep star uh, wars sequels star wars sequels uh sort of was sort of was star wars in general but we ended up doing a lot yeah, of talk about yeah. the sequels for sure uh then we did was tron after that tron uh then oh brother where art thou oh, brother where art thou and harry potter and harry potter wow that went by quick didn't it yeah now for the most part i'd say so far um we uh for the most part we've covered movies that were pretty easy to relate to christianity um what i've been wanting to do now i started a series on my on this channel sort of for, during my monologues i only did one to start the series off but the basic idea I had was I want to tackle movies that overtly tackle spiritual themes um, to the point where maybe like if you're a Christian and you have a non-Christian friend who watches secular mainstream Hollywood movies, they would look at it and go, hey, you should watch this movie because it tackles these themes. It's right up your alley. Um, but because it's from mainstream Hollywood, we might be suspicious that it uh, doesn't tackle it from an orthodox standpoint, right? Um, and so like for instance, at some point, maybe we'll talk about uh, Chariots of Fire. That was one. Uh, but the first one I covered by myself was Bruce Almighty. You ever see Bruce Almighty? Um, man, I feel like I watched some of it. Yeah, but um, I was actually just re-listening to it today. It was so good, if I may say so myself. But <laughs> no, no I, I was happy with it because um, like, there's a surface level nice moral to the story. Um, but then there are a bunch of like theological claims in it where God has conversation with Bruce. Um, but basically do you know the, do you know the premise of Bruce Almighty? Yeah. 
yeah, uh, receives God's powers to see if he can do a better job because he was criticizing how the job God was doing. Um, and sort of the moral is it's a lot harder to be God than you think. And also, uh, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have too much selfish ambition. You should put others before yourself. That's the surface level theme. And so like, it does get real casual and chummy about God, uh, in some ways for sure. But the don't be selfish thing is true enough. But then I dove into like some of the, uh, it, it's not just like an allegory about Christianity. It's actually like, this is God. And it makes some very, like as much of a comedy as it is, it makes some pretty serious claims about God. Hmm. Um, and I, I watched some of the, I read some of the comments when I was editing together some of the clips and people are like, wow, I got more truth out of this than a Sunday sermon, that sort of thing. <laughs> Even though it was, you know, rank heresy some of the time. And so I like, <laughs> I like, I'd love if, you know, we could have more conversations about that kind of movie, you know, yeah. where it's mainstream Hollywood, but they're attempting, you know, uh, a Christian thing, but it's, you know, questionable and those questions make a good conversation. But anyways, for the, I think we've done that a bit as we've done our movie discussions yeah. with things that are taking a swing at spiritual themes. This week is going to be a little different because we're going to be tackling a movie that I think is self-consciously a little more hostile to Christianity. At least that's my take. I'd love to hear your take, but uh, I tried to read and see if there was some kind of interview or uh, written piece on the actual stated political religious views of the director, writer. Um, I couldn't find anything in the short amount of time that I gave myself. Maybe if I dug a little deeper earlier, maybe I would have found more, but that's generally not what was put at the forefront of, you know, the, the pieces on these, on particularly on the movie we're going to talk about. But, um, so that's kind of what we're going to do. Ash is in the chat. Hello. Hello, Ash. Did you manage to get the uh, restream chat up and running? I did. Oh, good. Good. Okay. Um, okay. So are you ready to dive into the movie of the week? Let's do it. All right. Okie dokie. So, what are we going to be? What are we going to be talking about this week? The film "There Will Be Blood." There will be blood. Okay, so uh, now I'm trying to remember the the name of the director. What was his name again? Uh, I imagine you uh, looked. Paul Thomas Paul, and, Paul Anderson. Paul something Anderson. Yeah, it's Paul something Anderson. Yes, people and, with three names. And uh, the. Uh, Oscar-winning actor Daniel Day-Lewis stars in the film. So if you could summarize the movie, what would you say were the key key points? Yeah, so it tells the tale of, uh, I believe it's Daniel Plainview Mm -hmm. and uh, his kind of quest for oil, but really uh, kind of, I think he summarizes himself at some point in the film when he, he basically says his quest is really just to get rid of everybody. You know, <laughs> he he has this he says this competition inside himself and it's to essentially force everyone to lose. Uh-huh. And uh so yeah, so he's he's probably about one of the most greedy vindictive fellows I've ever seen in a mm-hmm. film. At certain points of the movie you root for him, but then later on you're just you realize what a what a creep this guy like really is, but 
Um, it's his quest, his quest for wealth and and all that that type of stuff. And then, as well, um, kind of the characters that he leaves in the the dust. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And so it starts off, yeah, with him uh, sort of digging in the dirt with a little team of guys. Mm-hmm. One of them dies because a tool falls down. Well, this is like right after they just they strike oil and they're pulling yeah. it out by the buckets. And the drill bit or whatever it is falls, big old thing falls down the hole and kills a guy. And he has a baby outside while they're working. And Daniel Day-Lewis's character has to basically take in the baby. You see him, he's like giving, giving milk to the baby. He's like, <laughs> I think he, right from the beginning, I think he's like putting what the, the whiskey in the, in the milk and giving it to the yeah. baby. <laughs> um, Different times. Yeah. And then it sort of time passes and he sets up a quote unquote, you know, family business. He passes him off as his own son says, mm-hmm. uh, my wife died in childbirth. Um, and he starts going and asking around these landowner landowners basically to, to drill on their land. And finally, uh, this, this guy comes, uh, who, his name is Paul. Mm-hmm. And he asks, uh, uh, will you pay me money? to come and drill on my land. Cause I know there's oil on my land. Um, and so he, uh, he goes and, and there is a, uh, a small town there with a preacher. So there's this, uh, very, uh, let's say what Pentecostal preacher of sorts, uh, <laughs> early, early 20th century. Yeah. I, I, it had notes of like, uh, apostolic slash perhaps, I don't know, maybe some, more like backwoods cult like <laughs> tendencies. Yep. Yeah, but he you know says like uh, he's a healer and a prophet, and uh, he's casting quote unquote casting out demons and sicknesses from his church service. But the movie plays it off as very manipulative and uh, basically that he's a charlatan, and mm-hmm. he starts uh, negotiating. And so this preacher is apparently the twin of Paul. Yeah. Now, th- now I'll say this: um, there's a debate in terms of how people interpret the movie as to whether it's the same guy mm. or whether it's his twin um, and what the, what the director intended. Yeah. Um, I, I did read that initially it was supposed to be a different actor playing Eli, mm-hmm. the preacher. Okay. So that kind of feeds into the, why was it changed? Was this intentional? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yes, the preacher asks for much more than the little chunk of money that Paul did, yeah, uh, the twin brother, and he starts basically trying to get his fingers into the oil business there as a preacher, and uh, basically makes life pretty difficult for Daniel as he's trying to. And but eventually they do strike oil big time on that land, and uh, he would you like to take over? Do you, how, how, now you just watched it, so yep. what, what starts to happen after that? Yeah, so, I mean, he strikes it rich. Um, and when he does, his son is deaf, becomes deaf. Yes. Because they, of an explosion out of the ground, there's a, basically. There's a gas explosion. Mm. And so it, it causes damage to his ears. And, um, you know, so that's kind of a, a side story that then picks up throughout the rest of the film. Um, his son's deaf, and he sends him off to basically learn how to communicate now that he's deaf Mm -hmm. um as well a mystery guy shows up claiming to be the brother of daniel i believe his name is henry yep and uh 
yeah, so he kind of becomes kind of like uh, an associate assistant of his. Um, Standard Oil starts to move in, and uh, they want the land, and they're willing to pay a million dollars, but Daniel turns it down because I think he knows what he's got, mm-hmm. knows his worth, and uh, now begins the quest to see Standard Oil fail. Yeah, um, you look and, like a fool, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, when he gets vindictive like that, it's, it's so, crazy. It's awesome. I, I, I mean, that's the thing. I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with this movie because I think I see the themes being tackled, but yeah. oh my gosh, it's such a good performance. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Did he win an Oscar for this performance? Mm, maybe. I think that there were Oscars won, at least one. Yeah. Maybe the directing, I don't know. I could I could see him winning a Best Actor Yeah. for this one. Could have been. Um, I feel like he's won a Best Actor yeah. Oscar before, but I'm I can quite, see it. I'm quite sure he has. He might have got one for Lincoln. I don't know. That was that was a good film as well. Yeah, uh, may, you know, not as intense of a performance as this one, but Mm-mm. anywho, um, yeah. eventually he comes at odds with more landowners and and Eli a little bit more. It just kind of keeps popping up. You keep mm-hmm. seeing these these components of Eli that are just more like he's scheming more and more throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And you see just what a jerk Eli is. I mean, he beats up his father, calls his dad stupid and beats him up. And it's just like, Oh, you <laughs> oh I forgot about that. That's just, right. By the end of it, you just want to hit this guy. <laughs> uh, but um, lo and behold, spoiler alert. Um, shouldn't have to give a spoiler on this film. Yeah. Um, see what happens henry ends up not being his brother and he's kind of clued in on some conversation um he ends up killing the guy <laughs> daniel and, kills uh, daniel kills his fake brother that's right kills his fake brother yes and and then kills eli at the very end of the movie yeah but uh, in between not- in between there there um i think one important piece is when he kills oh, yeah, his yeah. fake brother a member of this church sees it <laughs> yeah and he like, Daniel's like, what's he going to do? Is he going to turn me in or whatever? And the guy goes, I want you to get baptized. Because he's sort of been, at the beginning, he's sort of evasive about religion. He's like, oh, I, yeah. I, I respect all faiths and yada, yada, yeah. yada. But I don't believe, I don't belong to any particular denomination or whatever. And the guy goes, I want you to be baptized, washed in the blood. And uh, that's the only way he's, but the thing is this guy's land that's asking him to get baptized, he's been wanting to lay his pipe through it and the guy wouldn't let him unless he gets baptized yep and so he gets baptized in order to finish off his uh his uh laying of pipe uh (laughs) for his oil Um, and that's a that's a pretty intriguing scene as he you know goes to the altar and eli i mean it's just this big dramatic scene of like Eli screaming at the top of the lungs, his lungs being like, I cast him out of here. And he slaps Daniel. <laughs> he slaps Daniel a few times. I've abandoned my child. Yeah, Just... getting him to admit he abandoned his child, which, yeah. you know, did he? Uh, I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's not his child, but did he really abandon him? He sent him off for to be able to learn how to communicate. Yeah. Maybe he did it at the expense of... It's, I think it's sort business. of, I think yeah. it's sort of implied like his son was becoming a burden and he didn't want him yeah. around. Yeah. Um, he's yeah. not a great father. He's not going to win any awards for being a dad. 
Yep. Um, but then at the end, his son wants to be uh, an oil man <laughs> himself, but not as enemies. But he's so competitive that he says, well, then you're my competitor. Yeah. Um, That's when it really is like, oh, man, like yep. you really are just the biggest jerk, man. Yep. Yep. And then and then after he uh, boots his son out, he um, and t- he tells him he's adopted and doesn't really <laughs> love him. And then he uh, and then the preacher comes asking for money, basically. Yeah, uh, for more business, and he's <laughs> go and, figure. <laughs> I drink your milkshake. Now that that's like famous, <laughs> famous scene from this movie. Uh, I don't know if you have ever heard that line before, but now you know it. Now but, I know it. Yeah, <laughs> and then he kill, and then he kills him. Yeah, yeah. I um, actually did not expect it to go there. Like, I, I mean, as violent as he's been throughout the film, mm-hmm. I actually didn't expect him to kill Eli. Yep. So. Okay, so th- that is the basic plot. Ash says, "Wow, sounds like a terrible movie." <laughs> we're we're really painting a bleak picture, aren't we? It is. I mean, it's a sad story. It's not as happy of a story as the other stories yeah. we've 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 talked about. But like I said, I picked it because it is clearly making commentary on. I'd say it's it's mainly making commentary on uh, capitalism and Christianity in America, uh, and I think. Uh, most I'd say a lot of interpretations I've seen and my take after watching it was it's basically critical of those things unlike movies we've talked about already and so I kind of wanted to at least uh, what did you pick up on did you feel some of that or did you not read into it as much or how did it hit you the first uh, as you first started so yeah so I read some comments as I was watching it that that stated as much yeah Um, and I felt I felt like I could land in one of two places. I I think it all would depend on what the writer's intent was. Mm-hmm. So I either feel like that is absolutely 100% accurate. Yep. Or, and this is, I lean less this way, but I could see it being, it, it, it would just depend on what the author's intent was. It could be a very critical... Uh, Oops. Sorry, so, you uh, broke up just sorry. a little bit there. Last sentence. I froze. Yeah, we're okay. Yeah. So, or the uh, the other side of it could be that it is um, perhaps like some kind of critical commentary on, you know, a charlatan of some sort. You know, but if it's that, he's pointing out the evils of greed and and envy and stuff like that. Yeah. I guess I lean towards it being critical of Christianity, not so much of false Christianity. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that's the thing in terms of how, like, I, I did catch a clip of, like, a beginning of an interview where a uh, director and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis were on Charlie Rose before Charlie Rose got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Charlie Rose said, like, okay, so the book t- tackled uh, socialism, but you tackled religion and business and he's like yeah uh so i think that at least to me tipped me off that it, it seems the take on the book was that it probably had socialist leanings um and so that wouldn't surprise me but just in terms of what i see to, in terms of uh social commentary generally from hollywood in terms of politics in terms of religion uh i think they see uh the free market and capitalism, not as like 
having the possibility of being corrupted per se, but as being a corrupting influence in and of itself. Uh, and also religion. It's like, I don't think they're critiquing the potential evil of religion when it's corrupted. I think they're actually saying no religion at its root is a corrupting influence. It seems like there's no redeeming qualities in like the, the preacher, like, Oh, you came from good preacher stock or you came from a good Christian heritage and you're a bad egg. It's like this. I think it is a representation of American, uh, spirituality Mm -hmm. to an extent. Um, and so what, what, what should a Christian do with that? You think when they feel that is what's coming out of art, when they see it, and I, I mean, you can, you can delve into the political economic aspect if you want. Um, there's a lot of different directions we could go there. Uh, but I think there's some other books and things we might want to critique in future episodes <laughs> talking <laughs> about that. I mentioned Doug Wilson's rules for reformers, where he talks about his views of economics and things like that in relationship to faith. I think there I think there is a lot to be said from a Christian perspective on that, but we don't have to go too deep into it here. But if you want to. Sure. Sure. Um as far as the film itself, you know, or films of such making where the intent may may be more directly hostile towards Christianity, how do we engage with it? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think necessarily, and this kind of harkens back to something that was kind of underlying what we talked about last week i don't think it's something that christians have to flee from mm-hmm. um you know there's it, it was a good watch you know like it was a good movie to watch and um so now what do i do with it like mm-hmm. how do i respond to such a criticism or um maybe I'd, maybe no response is directly necessary unless it comes up in conversation um but i think one of the ways i would handle that is to look at what was actually said and give a response to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the the start with Daniel as a character and and his approach towards wealth and and maybe the criticism towards him is that capitalism corrupted this guy and um, you know whatever maybe that's the point of the author or the movie the mm-hmm. writer screenwriter um, these type of things and it, it's in line with what we're going to talk about in our theological segment. Um, these are things that are coming from within, not a corrupting outside force. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly the draw of money um, and extreme wealth could pull something more out of him than maybe it pulls out of you or I or somebody else. Um, not everybody in their total depravity is as corrupted in the same way as this guy was um, we are not utterly corrupt. We're not as evil as we possibly can be, but that's coming up. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it wasn't the outside force that caused him to be as greedy as he was. That, that mm. was internal. So That is sort of, I think, a big divide when it comes to secular views of politics and Christian views yeah. is you will find particularly uh, – particularly from a more left-wing movements is a view of society that is much more to do with systems than individual right. morality. Um, and they'll, t- they'll talk about the capitalist system and there is that they see this drive for success that I think is a God given thing. They see this drive for creation, this, this drive for enjoying the fruit of your own labor, which to me, functions in a should function in a free market and we could talk about that but they see that as itself 
in and of itself is the corrupting influence, not sin mixed with that. Um, And so they fight the system that allows for human creativity um, because they think, yeah, well, did you get what I'm saying? Is that? Yeah. Well, along the political lines of it, my understanding of like conservatism, which often often is tied together with the idea of free market and capitalism Mm -hmm. um, is personal responsibility for these things. Yeah, you know, I, I, that is really summed up in a very short way. Like that, I'm, I'm purposely smashing a lot together into one little, one yep. little sentence there. But personal responsibility kind of functions at, at the core of that. Mm-hmm. When mankind was created in the garden, one of the very first things that they were told to do was to be fruitful and multiply, and to steward what God had given them. And the idea of stewarding it was to tend it, to work it, to cultivate, and to see increase. So it wasn't just to, um, you know, sit around and and hope that the system worked. Mm-hmm. Um, it was to cultivate, and and that requires um, personal responsibility. And 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 you see that I I think through the scriptures um, some principles of sowing and reaping and and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to have a worldview shaped by the scriptures, I I don't want to command anybody's conscience as far as where to land politically or anything like that, but I I think that scripture um will influence the way we think. Um it should it it should influence the way we think and I think in that these type of things like personal responsibility um, really come to fruition. If you're blaming systems and outside forces for everything, which does seem to be more of the progressive tendency to blame systems like you were talking about, there's never any responsibility to cultivate, to sow, and to reap. It's just it's just reaping. Mm-hmm. Do you think what What do you say to people? I I have I think I have uh some of an answer that, that I've sort of formulated for this, but what do you say to someone who uh, points out, for instance, Acts 2, where uh, the uh, early church shared things amongst themselves and said, ah, the early Christians probably would have supported a socialist outlook. What would you say to that? Well, number one, that's not political. <laughs> um, they lived under Roman rule. And so it really had nothing to do with voting for a certain party or, or anything like that. Number two, I do like the idea of members of the church, um, the body of Christ, caring for one another, and that not falling specifically or fully on the uh, back of the government and therefore the taxpayer's dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe that first and foremost— um, as it is possible, it's not always possible, but as it is possible, um, families should try to care for family members. Beyond mm-hmm. that, when that's not possible, and and when there's a healthy gospel culture, you will see the church, which is family, caring for its own. And that's what I think is happening in Acts 2. The community that we see there is a community that is treating one another as family and caring for brothers and sisters. And uh, so I don't think that you can really fully make the argument that the people of Acts 2 would have supported 
um, socialism or anything like that, just based on that one verse. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's different context. And generally, what I say is actually what you see in X2 would actually support the opposite. Because to me, being generous, uh, proving yourself generous, proving yourself to be um, altruistic with your money, altruistic with everything, that assumes private ownership. In other words, like if it comes out of my paycheck before I even get my paycheck through taxes and gets redistributed without my consent (laughs) or any of that, that says nothing about my heart. Um, Whereas we know they willingly gave of themselves and gave the fruit of their labor to others when they were in need. Um, And so there is actually a presumption of, um, of taking ownership over your own, over the fruit of your labor uh, in a way that's loving. Um, so and as well with that they weren't commanded they, right. they weren't actually commanded to do so it was born of the spirit mm-hmm. uh, born of the love that was overflowing in their hearts from receiving from christ that they made that decision to do so yeah. of their own accord yeah and also the private ownership in that sense that's actually what christ appeals to what god appeals or what the master appeals to in christ's parables mm. when the men are uh working in the field um and they start complaining because, like, the ones who showed up early made the same amount as those who showed up late. Uh, and he says, do I not have the right to do with my own what I, what I want to with what I own? And so he appeals to being allowed. And so, like, the, the generosity of the master of the field representing God, um, like, that generosity is demonstrated by him saying he has ownership over his own land. Um. So I, I yep. think again, it's, it's there's a principle there that's appealed to, and I think uh, those who would promote these um, redistributive policies, let's say, uh, yeah. they're actually they're appealing to generosity, but generosity presupposes something outside of their system. Yeah. I think, now I do want to add one layer to that, mm-hmm. just from a personal opinion, mm-hmm. and I don't even know you might. You might actually disagree with this, and that's fine. Um, I do have compassion. Whoops, sorry, you're breaking up. Maybe because you're saying heresy, uh, but no. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Every time I, every time I freeze up, it's like I'm looking straight up in the air, and so I yeah. look down, and all of a sudden I see my face like oh. staring into this clouds. <laughs> sorry, start over. Um, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so what I, what I wanted to say is like I do have compassion um, in the sense that. I, you shouldn't feel any guilt or shame um, if you're taking advantage. And, and I don't use the word taking. Maybe I shouldn't use the word taking advantage. That might be loaded. Mm-hmm. If you're utilizing um, certain government programs that exist to help people in need, um, you know, if, if you're not abusing the system that exists, um, I don't think you should feel guilt or shame for utilizing it as long as it's not violating your conscience Mm -hmm. um, and you're using it appropriately in in an effort to get yourself back on your feet. Um, You've hit a difficult, you know, an example of that might be like unemployment or um, which, you know, unemployment is actually covered by insurance and things like that. But like, you know, food stamps and things like that, there are there are genuine genuine needs where that happens and and it can be a big blessing to people um in that sense but um 
I know that's a much broader and deeper conversation. Yeah. I can make a couple comments that jump to mind in that, like I've had unemployment in my history of it. To me, it's like you can, I'd say you can make a, it's difficult. You can make a principled argument defending the fact that like we're in this system, we've paid into the system. And so you can justify getting out of the system um, to an extent. At the same time, it's hard to argue against them there's there's a bad reason it's hard to argue against that in that we're already dependent to an extent um which can make it difficult uh and so like oh wait ash kale what do you say to those who think those programs shouldn't exist because christians should be taking care of them well you you um i know you mentioned like you just said uh you do think that the church should be well i mean the bible says like we should care for the household of faith and then like everyone, especially the household of faith. So there is like inside and outside the church. Uh, I think blessing that the church is called to do there. Um, well, I, I, I was, I, I lost my train of thought a little bit. So if you have more to, if you have a bit of a response to her, that's fine. And I'll sort of regain what I was saying, but go ahead. Can you hear? Oh, you kind of froze up there. So I didn't hear what the, Oh, sorry. I was saying I was like halfway through a train of thought. And so if you want to give an answer to your thoughts on her question, um, I'll regain what I was thinking. But Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in some ways, because of the way that the system has been managed, um, I believe that there is a lot of uh, need that's out there that might be beyond the scope of most local churches. Um, I also don't believe it is the responsibility of, how do I want to word this? It's, it's the responsibility of local churches to care for local churches, you know, like local assemblies take care of local assemblies. So, um, I don't think it's necessary that we bankrupt ourselves trying to support every feeding program around the world. Um, when, those are good things and you can give to those in good faith. But um, I I, I do think maybe the better option is to care for those in your local assembly, your local church. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I I think that some, some thought should be given to the fact that the system uh, is so overwrought maybe with poverty and and need that it might be too much even for the, the church to bear. Mm-hmm. Is that a symptom of the problem to begin with? Maybe. Um, I don't know. It, it's it's complicated. I I would say, again, when the need is there, uh, if the church is able to assist, absolutely the church should do so, can do so, has grace to do so. Um, but I don't think people... I, I don't think people should feel shame over having to have... Uh, use some of these programs that exist out of there if they're used responsibly um, for for a season. Yeah, and I think the question, like, if I'm gonna, def- if I would were to defend some measure of government programs in that sense, I, my mind tends to jump to, for instance, gleaning laws in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you could maybe get a bare minimum social safety net kind of idea, possibly from the Old Testament. Um, that's not. That's not out of the question in my mind, but I would say I think we would agree things are so overbloated now that uh, it has created dependency on a wide scale, where it's like 
people are not offended <clears throat> when we question these things uh, because um, I think people are offended because of over-dependence uh, and, yeah. and not yeah. out of actual principle, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I think uh. with these programs, I think very few conservatives um, <laughs> have any plans to remove at least yeah, they might want to remove some of them or at least remove the bloating of them. Mm -hmm. But very few Republicans, uh, well, no Republicans, uh, very few conservatives um, are looking to completely get rid of all these programs. Yeah, it's a tough thing. Even if you were like long term, like wanting to reform it in that way, it would have to be incremental. Like, I would say like I don't I think I, th I do think conservatives should uh, pursue a shrinking of this bloat of dependence. Yeah. Um, but even if that's your principle, I think it's unavoidable that it would be incremental because you rip it out from under pe people's feet. It, like the, the way it's worked its way into so many Americans' lives, it would be so harmful. And so like that's what makes it so manipulative actually is because there is that damage it would do if it was gone tomorrow. And you can't, yeah. you can't deny that. And so uh, because you have this principle, you're criticized – people think they can get away with criticizing your principle uh, because they can see the immediate effect. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's the unfortunate state of affairs. And so, um, but in principle, yeah, I think, um, I don't think conservatives, particularly Christian conservatives sh should run away from a greater pursuit of personal responsibility yeah. and taking on more of, I think the burden of, helping people and when it's done locally with a church, whether it be for the church members or for the local community, what's better about that is that you can see what the actual need is. I think yeah. when, the, when these programs are so large, you see, um, you see a disconnect between, you know, the government and the individual seeking this program and that the government, if particularly if it's like even wider than that, like the federal government, they don't see the individual, necessarily that they're handing this to and whether or not it's creating greater dependence or rescuing them from a real, yeah, you know, traumatic situation, or whether, whether the greater dependence is the, the goal. Right. See, now that's when we get a little <laughs> spicy and conspiracy, <laughs> conspiratorial. So that's the, that's the, okay. We went down quite a trail there. Uh, How did this have to do with the movie? <laughs> well, the movie, uh, yeah, I think I still feel the relationship in that people, um, <laughs> We're talking about uh, people arguing against free markets in favor yeah, of redistribution. Yeah. Um, and so that is sort of the economic question. We sort of tackled that with a long train of thought. Uh, now, what about back to the more, I mean, it's not unrelated, but back yeah. to the more spiritual, supposed, supposed uh, spiritual criticisms the movie makes against yeah. religion. Well, so it would seem. I I feel like with the spiritual aspect of it, there's there's two ways that he criticizes religion. Number one, the preacher knows exactly what he's doing. He is evil. He is manipulative, controlling, greedy, and just a horrible dude. Mm -hmm. The parishioners, the the congregants, um, are naive, illiterate, country bumpkins who don't know their feet from their hands. I'm going to say it as nice as I can. Um, and I feel like in some ways that's the picture he's painting of religion. Um, that's Daniel's assumption of religion. 
that it's for the stupid, it's for the mindless, it's for the masses who just um, have no, you know, get up and go in life. Uh, religion is just a, a crutch for them. And and they go pretty far into painting that picture. Um, the preacher is this wild frothing at the mouth, uh, seemingly Pentecostal, <laughs> though he doesn't you know, speak in tongues or anything like that, but probably, um, does. probably does in the spare time, but you know, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, is clearly a characterized characterization of maybe what some people would think of preachers from that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and then the movie sort of shows him behind the scenes and that he's using that again to get his fingers into this financial benefit. Yeah. Um he's yeah. One one criticism too, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how Hollywood always does a terrible time with the lingo. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think that's generally true with unbelievers in general. Um this is not meant to be mean or anything, but I just think unbelievers, um, when they hear the words that are kind of used by Christians, they don't get the context of it. And so then you get things like when they're telling Daniel he needs to get saved. He just needs to have the blood put in him or something, you know, it's something to that effect. (laughs) And it's like, okay, so you heard the word blood, you heard the word repentance. And so your idea of it is you got to get like dipped in the blood, you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. Um, And and so it's like, these words just always sound foreign on their tongue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So the mixture, this mixture of the, uh, movies seeming commentary on the evils of religion and the evils of greed. Now we should say like Christianity, like it is interesting. Often I find when someone uh, takes a critical view of Christianity, they often use Christian presuppositions to do that. And so there are Christian, there are texts, for instance, where Paul talks about uh, those who, uh, seek to be rich, uh, fall into a snare and pierce themselves with many pangs, I think is the mm-hmm. terminology he uses. And the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Um, what what would you say is the difference between that Christian theme and maybe the uh, criticism of ca- capitalism itself? Hmm. Yeah, so I think, again, it touches on the theology that we're going to speak of today, the theology spotlight, um, mm-hmm. which is total depravity. I just gave it away again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the evil, the, the sinfulness of these things, the pursuit of, um, I don't know, I mean, it's not even the pursuit of riches, because you can, you can pursue healthy wealth management in a way that is not sinful. Um, it just depends on how you view money, really. I mean, it's a principle that comes down to, like, how do you view the things that you've received from God, and how do you use them? So there is a wrong way to do so, um, but it, it all comes down to the heart. You know, so the heart is—we we are born in sin. We're going to get to this in a moment. I keep spoiling it. We're going to get to this in a moment. <laughs> We're born in sin, and so— um, a corrupted heart may that may be the bent of someone uh the way that sin affects them um you know 
money may be at the root of all sorts of evil in that in that person, you know, greed and and the pursuing of these things at all costs. Um, but I don't think that that is to say that for all people everywhere, money, um, capitalism, the pursuit of um, you know, investing wisely and turning your money into more money um, is completely evil. It's it's the idolatry of such that is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, boy, thoughts are coming in and out of my head as you as you speak. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's fine. Um, but uh, yeah, um, it is interesting in the Old Testament. There is, I feel like, a difference in how money's talked about in the old testament and the new testament not that it's contradicting but it does seem that when you see the riches of kings for instance or wealth talked about mm-hmm. with job or wealth talked about in uh the proverbs it very much does seem to communicate that it is okay to see wealth as a blessing from god whereas in the new testament you do get much more of that criticism of the wealthy from christ and warnings against uh the deceptive nature of wealth from Paul. Uh, Not that that's not in the Old Testament at all. I think it is. Um, Again, I mentioned Doug Wilson before, but he talks about, like in the Proverbs, you do see something that says, like, it's better to be, I mean, this is probably a a mashing together of multiple Proverbs, but the idea of it's better to be uh, virtuous and poor than rich and corrupt, basically. But actually, when you hear that, there's actually four choices there, not two. So oftentimes in Christianity, and it is often a way I think that these political movements entice Christians to uh, hate capitalism or free markets or whatever, is that there's this um, there's this belief that uh, there is somehow automatically virtue in poverty, mm. rather than that it's good to be virtuous and and poor than to be rich and corrupt. It's drawing a contrast there, but actually that, like, again, there's four choices there. You can have, uh, you can have a corrupt rich person or a virtuous rich person. You could have a corrupt poor person or a, uh, or you can have a corrupt poor person, or you could have a, a virtuous poor person on either side. Um, and so, um, I think you kind of need to have that holistic biblical view of it and that, one of the issues with some of these progressive political movements is uh, like when we talk about things like, uh, I don't know, we throw some buzzwords out there like intersectionality or um, different critical theories that categorize oppressor versus oppressed. Um, Scripture doesn't quite do that. It does talk about having compassion for the poor, but there's also, for instance, laws that say do not defer to the rich or to the poor. In other Mm -hmm. words, there's a, there's a danger in both. You can defer to the rich because you, oh, well, they're obviously good. God's blessing them. They're rich. They're obviously going to be in the right. Or you can disfavor the poor person and say, well, they're obviously stupid, don't know how to manage their money, and they're probably immoral, and so I'm going to ignore them. But Scripture says not to let your deference to the rich overtake you and not to let your pity for the poor overtake you. You should do justice. Yeah. Um, I think I think some of the context helps with that, understanding mm-hmm. even the, those um, principles, because... Israel, especially in in that context, got to a place where they really felt like the blessing of God was seen in wealth, and so they often turned their nose up to the to the poor. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even in the New Testament, when you start to see things like, well, 
it was whether during the life of Christ or um, under the new covenant afterwards, um, after his death and resurrection. Um, the principles like being said there, like in James, he talks about not showing. Um, uh, I had the word and then I lost it. Not showing any preference uh, to to the rich or or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. There was a cultural emphasis being placed on wealth, uh, saying that that was clearly the blessing of God, and if you were poor, you were cursed of God. And so, uh, you know, I think you could say New Covenant writers are are telling the listener, the reader. That that is not the case, you know. Mm-hmm. That you know, again, you can be virtuous or corrupt in wealth or in poverty. Yeah, from what I understand, if you when they dug up uh, different sites from that era, they found possessions from the Pharisees, and they had like uh, these bottles of wine, apparently that were just worth mm-hmm. loads and loads and loads of money. And um, the wealth with the Pharisees, it was pretty clear. Like Christ was calling out a particular. Uh, time of corruption in the religious elite mm-hmm. um, and financial corruption that perhaps was not true in every era that you're reading in scripture. Uh, right. And so you see that difference. Like I mentioned before, there is more of an emphasis. I think you see both in both testaments, but you see that I think a little bit more emphasis on the blessing of God evidenced by wealth in the old Testament versus the dangers of wealth in the new Testament. Um, I think that probably has something to do with it. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so any other thoughts, like any other themes you think, uh, were provoked for you by the movie as you, as you watched it? Uh, it, it was very tragic, you know, like the whole story in general was very tragic. Um, whether that was necessarily thematically tied into, uh, the, the criticism towards, um, free market capitalism or whatever, um, I could see that I could see that being tied in in some way. Like there seems to be an attempt, um, uh, often in progressivism, to say that they are the part they're they are the the political worldview of family and you know caring for the destitute, and that all these rich one percenters that make up capitalism hate babies and kids and. <laughs> And it's kind of like, what in the world? Like, where did that come from? Well, the, the word capitalism was, didn't Marx come up with the word capitalism? It's more, what mm. would you call it? It, it, it? It's oftentimes why people get confused when they try to, like a conservative tries to Google a defense of capitalism. It's hard to find because capitalism was invented as a critical word mm. uh, against what we call capitalism, which I think it's supply side economics. Um, I and did so, not know that. And so... Um, if you look up a defense of supply side economics, you're going to find much more positive Hmm. explanations of it. But capitalism is in its origins, a critical word uh, against, against this, against, um, you know, free markets. Interesting. Um, And so that's why, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to do your research on it sometimes because of the vocabulary. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, Um, boy, I should probably put my fan on, but I'm realizing there's like this little hum that shows up. It's getting <laughs> hot in here, though. Let me put this on and put it on. Who knew we would have Hello. such a hot topic? I know, right? Um, Yeah. And so, boy, any other thoughts before we move on to a little bit of trivia? We tackled quite a bit yeah, on this movie. I, th- 
I More think I I'm thought. good there. Yeah. 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 Okay. So capitalism, good. <laughs> Conservatism, good. <laughs> Christianity, good. <laughs> movie bad no movie the movie is <laughs> the movie was a good movie that's the weird thing that's the thing well that's i just can't wait for the day this is like again i can't wait to do more content on eschatology and stuff at least on my own maybe as i tackle more of it we'll talk about it more i don't know but um the i i, I want to understand more how christians lost their authority and culture in terms of creation of art and that um i've seen i'm seeing glimmers of it coming back sometimes but yeah. like it is the hollywood elite who <laughs> through well, cap through capitalism got pretty rich by their artwork yeah. are now super incredibly hostile of capitalism some but, of uh, it I th some of it i think comes into things like dualism you know when when spiritual and the rest of things kind of get separated you know, we've got our spiritual things, and then there's all those other things we're supposed to abstain from. Um, I tend to like to place a lot of blame at movements like the holiness movements of the 18 and 1900s, and mm -hmm. um, we we kind of squashed creativity out of the out of the out of the church, and so I think then what happens is we lose our voice in it. You know, yeah. we lose the ability to have anything to say on the matter. Yeah, and so, it, like, you get these award-winning directors, like, you can see some of it's, I think, Hollywood is sort of uh, crumbling in a lot of ways now, in that I think a lot of Oscar-winning stuff is not that great. It yeah. just tackles the right political themes. Yeah. Whereas this movie's a li little, little older, uh, it's not super old, but uh, I don't know, it was back when there was some talent behind, at least more talent behind those Oscars, I think awarding yeah. them so it's like it's but it's in that middle spot where it's like it is deserved because of the quality but it's also hitting those political drum beats um you know in a lot of ways that drive us crazy but like <laughs> i would love to see i'd love to see christians regain that authority and storytelling again where yeah. we can tackle themes just as powerful and just as eloquently without without so many words you know with more pictures and that's one of the problems I think with a lot of Christian media is we tell like the, one of the rules in movies is you show, you don't tell. Right. Um, and we tend to like, we compensate for the bad acting with a lot more dialogue <laughs> <laughs> and it gets wordy and preachy and we, you know, you can't just land the punch, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, well, that's, that's my take anyways. I think it's shared. <laughs> yep. Um, all right, so we've got a little bit of little bit of trivia. Now we already did a pure um, predestination uh, trivia challenge when we tackled reform theology in general. Um, so I should lay out a little bit of my plan for the next five times we do this, however it lines up. Um, and that I think because we sort of introduced our stories walking into reform theology. Uh, we, that was more about our stories. We didn't get it too much into the nitty gritty. We very quickly summarized. Um, but I think for the next five episodes, we're actually going to walk through the five points of Calvinism themselves. Mm -hmm. So that should be fun. But before we do that, we're going to dive into some theology in terms of trivia. And so I found the, a, I found a, the basics of Calvinism trivia quiz and it's 10 questions long. So, uh, are we ready for our trivia challenge of the week? We are. 
All right. Alrighty, so here we go. I think I've got the window being captured properly and everything. Hey, it's working. I didn't have any glitches. No overlays jumping on the screen or anything like that. <laughs> All right. So, are we ready? Yes. We'll see who if you can re if you can steal the crown for being the superior Calvinist here. <laughs> or whether I have to hit the blasphemy button. Alright. <laughs> so would you like to read the first question? In general, reformist Christianity can be defined by two basic doctrinal camps, Calvinism and what other type? Ah, Pentecostal reformism. Interesting. Baptist yeah. New Age dualism. <laughs> Ooh. Well, we know everything else really is New Age dualism. So There you go. No. Uh, what would be Arminianism, yes? Would yep. you agree? All right. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm not used to this word reformist Christianity. Yeah, that's I a, feel, a new feel, phrase. I'm wondering if... Uh, if a knowledgeable theologian wrote this or if it's somebody sort of from the outside looking in, <laughs> that's kind of a, I don't know. <laughs> All right. The five points of Calvinism have often been associated with a plant that is an acronym for the first letter of each point. What is the acronym? Well, we know the Arminian flower is the daisy, right? <laughs> there you go. It's, it's, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. <laughs> Right? Oh, you haven't That's, heard that? You haven't I haven't heard, that, heard that, but I've I haven't heard it, but I've lived it. <laughs> oh, man. now see, I'm pretty sure that like the the Calvinist came up with that joke, but I yeah. heard a friend of mine who used to go to our church uh, before he was with us. He was in a fundamentalist Baptist church, and he went back there to debate Calvinism. Mm. Um, and uh, when they did their opening statement, they said Calvinists believe that, and so they took out like a rose. And started picking, picking. No, I, no. I think it might have been a tulip. I don't know because they were making fun oh. of the tulip. Because like you don't know if you're elect. So he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And so I guess it could go both ways. But I'm pretty sure Calvinist came up with the joke first. But <laughs> the answer is tulip. Yes, it's, which we will get into. <laughs> uh, Ash is laughing about this. All right, nice. Uh, Romans six twenty says. For when ye were servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. This verse is used as proof of which of the five points of Calvinism. That's probably the one we're talking about today, right? Yeah. Total, Total depravity. depravity. Lesser <laughs> of evils. <laughs> Repulsion of the saints. Total no, that's politics. See, I thought maybe they'd pick ones that were real, but now, yeah. now it's easy because that's the only <laughs> that's real the only one. one. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Savvy, how are we doing? Oh, boy. Yep. Well, welcome to some Christian theology talk, Sabby. Glad you're here. Lesser of evils. <laughs> yes, this is my not gaming channel, Sabby, but welcome all the same. If you're up for some Christian theology talk, feel free to stick around. Uh, which of the five points of Calvinism is represented in Romans 9.15? For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. <laughs> these are great <laughs> incompletability over <laughs> oversight by god <laughs> unknown exclamation of mercy <laughs> and unconditional election that's amazing oh. <laughs> i'm gonna go with d unconditional election all right there you go <laughs> okay oh <sighs> 
predestination is to Calvinism as blank is to blank. Which answer is best fill in the blank? Okay. That's probably this one. <laughs> Rhetorism is to amillennialism. <laughs> See, now, now more, more than one of these, I suppose, could be right. I mean, that, eh, kind of. <laughs> more so post-millennialism, but this one, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got people... <laughs> Oh, this is from Fun Trivia. Go to funtrivia.com and type in Calvinism. And this is this was the only one that popped up, actually. So, hey. The belief that once a Christian has been saved, it is impossible to lose their salvation uh, is an expression of what basic point of Calvinism? St- okay. All right, we got, now we, we've got to read through them all now. Oh, this is <laughs> Stations of the cross. Calvinism does not support the belief that salvation is permanent. Undeserved grace. Perseverance of the saints. <laughs> this is a great quiz perseverance of the saints i don't think we've had this much fun with one of these before. <laughs> no. all right when a follower of calvinistic doctrine reads the words of jesus quoted in john seventeen nine, i pray for them i pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me for they are mine which doctrinal point do they see being shown <laughs> <laughs> particular so, prayer incomplete, incomplete salvation <laughs> limited atonement and selection and transfer selection and transfer <laughs> i feel like that's like sports related there oh that's great limited the seventh at- pick in the 2022 draft all right limited atonement is there the we answer. go i'm pretty sure you can read this one if you want a major influence on Calvinism was the absolute dedication to the principle that God is self-limited in his authority, sovereign over all, not concerned with human actions, constrained by man's free will. Gee, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with sovereign over all. All right. Calvinism supports all but one of these doctrines, uh, which is not accepted by Calvinism. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go with purgatory. Hey. All right. And number 10. I think we nailed this one, Caleb. I got to (laughs) say. We're going to blow it on this last one. I just have a feeling. Okay. Considered by many to be John Calvin's ultimate literary work, (laughs) this book was first published in Latin in 1536 and in French in 1541. Wait. I didn't know about Latin. Interesting. The title Mm. of this work, as it is best known in English, City of God, Summa Theologica, uh, Apocalypse <laughs> of Gabriel. <laughs> now he's working on apocryphal books. Oh man! <laughs> Institutes of the Christian Religion. Yes. Was Apocalypse of Gabriel? Was that an apocryphal book? I don't know. Uh, it, I don't think it actually made uh, any any canon, <laughs> even as an apocryphal book. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's probably one of those uh, hidden knowledge type books. Right. Right. Okay. I think we nailed this. Let's see what we got here. All right. Arminianism. Correct. Tulip. Total depravity. A commercial. Unconditional <laughs> election. Free will Arminianism. Perseverance of the saints. Limited atonement. Uh, sovereign overall. Purgatory. And institutes of Christian <laughs> hey. religion. Hey, hey. Is that the Weird. first quiz that we've yeah. nailed all the way? Yeah, I think awesome. so. Awesome. How is the average score for this one? Seven out of ten, though. Because uh, you know, it's, people, <laughs> who, who people is picking these answers? <laughs> people who just feel like going through a bunch of quizzes and aren't that 
theological, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, so we've covered our trivia. Um, so we nailed it, knocked it out of the park, <laughs> and had fun all at the same time. All right, hold on a second here. Uh, um, <laughs> so are we ready for a little bit of our theology corner? Yeah. All right. Alrighty, so what should we, as we begin here, should we walk through the five points so that we can get a little bit of an intro of the weeks to come? Yeah, but you have to use the phrases from the quiz. Oh, okay. Uh, (laughs) I've already forgotten them, but... (laughs) Uh, They were fantastic. (laughs) Something and transfer... Selection transfer. Stations in the cross. Stations of the cross. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so... uh, the acronym generally uh, that summarizes the Calvinistic view of salvation, soteriology, as it's called. Uh, what is the flower? We, do we remember from the quiz? That would be the tulip. The tulip. And, okay, so let's walk on through them. I should give a little maybe historical. <laughs> oh, Savvy says he feels like uh, watching two priests reading a holy book. Oh, boy. Well, Savvy <laughs> is from India. I should give okay. you some uh, context. I believe he is Hindu, actually, but he joins over on my gaming channel quite a bit. And so if you'd like to learn a bit more about our faith, stick around. We're going to be talking about uh, some doctrines of salvation from our denomination's perspective. Um, and so, cool. Um, yeah, so I should give a little context. In the Reformation, um, the Arminians eventually objected to uh, a lot of the... Not a lot of... They objected to five... Uh, aspects of the overarching reformed theology and the and then there was a response to those uh objections which eventually i don't think they originally were stated as these phrases summarized in this uh acronym but eventually i, I don't remember the history of it but or I, I don't know if i heard about it but um i don't remember if i heard the exact event or development where it gained this vocabulary but eventually it became it was stated as the five points of calvinism as the tulip and so what is the tulip caleb what is t that would be total depravity total depravity followed by the u which is unconditional unconditional election followed by the l which is uh i'm losing my calvinist card because sometimes i forget uh (laughs) limited atonement yes and then I is irresistible grace. And the final yep. one is the perseverance of the saints. All right. And so, like I said, we're going to be walking through these uh, over the next probably five podcasts. But today we're covering the doctrine of total depravity. Now, I'd say from pretty much every branch of Christianity, even to one, even into ones where we'd have really foundational disagreements like um, Roman Catholicism and uh, like Eastern Orthodoxy and things like that, they still have a strong doctrine of sin. Yeah. They would say we have, uh, we are born with a sin nature, but the extent to which that's the case, the aspects of our humanity that are impacted by that, um, and what the implications are of that in regard to our need of grace and what grace accomplishes, that's where the differences start to 
start to show up. So what what differences would you say there are between other branches of Christianity and their view of sin versus the the Calvinistic total depravity? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, like you said, most affirm the idea of our sinfulness, our our fallenness. Um, I guess it's it's really to the extent that the corruption goes in our ability um, to respond or to decide on on these matters of salvation, matters of faith and grace. So um, I was part of a movement for a while that had a very strong emphasis on the sinful nature, um, taught it well, uh, you know, taught taught it with depth and gusto. Um, I think perhaps the area where it kind of falls short, and I think you said this in our show prep, um, is when it comes down to ability. Mm -hmm. Um, And total depravity, as we understand it, really affects our ability, not so much the fact that we're sinful, though, yes, that absolutely is part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think it's difficult to talk about this doctrine without also talking about what we'll eventually get to, which is um, irresistible grace, because... Yeah. I would actually think from my reading of Arminius, which it's been a long time, uh, or my he- what I've heard from more uh, biblically grounded Arminians, Arminians who have studied a lot, I find that, generally speaking, when they talk about the human being apart from grace, um, they generally do describe the same thing when it comes to our ability. Uh, the difference is in what grace accomplishes yeah in its drawing um and so i would say if i could frame it this way the arminian generally the other side of this debate they'll say that grace is necessary to be capable of putting your faith in christ um the holy spirit needs to influence you and your heart needs to be drawn by the holy spirit because it will not pursue god on its own the arminian will say that at least if they've if they've studied their scripture to, to a significant extent, but what they think that grace, that grace accomplishes when it comes is that it opens up. It sort of, I think one way it's uh, stated is that it restores our free will. Oh, it looks like we got disconnected. Oh, look at his face. He looks confused. Hey, <laughs> we, ha- Sorry, we lost you for lost a second. You. All right. Well, you're back now. But I was saying yeah. um, what, what the Arminian would say that, grace accomplishes is that it restores the free will that we lost in our depravity, opening up the possibility to go for or against Christ. Whereas the Calvinist sees because grace is necessary, because it, because sin goes down to the very depths of our hearts and defines our nature to such an extent, grace needs to go that deep too. And so I tend to say, um, because we're, um, totally depraved in the Calvinist sense, Grace needs to work totally, um, hmm. which makes it irresistible because it is actually going down to the very root of our hearts, going down to the part of us that creates our desires. And if our desires are changed and are, uh, <clears throat> um, and if uh, the Holy Spirit works to such an extent, um, then it's going to change our desires. It's going to change our nature. It's going to cause us inevitably to choose, inevitably to choose Christ. And so. Calvinists don't embrace what is called uh, a libertarian free will. In other words, I, and I would say Jonathan Edwards, who was, uh, they'd say he was uh, sort of the father of the 
not the father of, they called him the last Puritan. They called him sort of, he was one of the lead preachers during the great awakening. Um, yeah. He basically, if you read his book, um, the freedom of the will, I think he does a really good job sort of explaining why the very concept of libertarian free will actually is illogical because our hearts and our desires need to have a certain bias, a certain set of desires in order to even produce a choice, a choice by definition is, uh, a preference. Hmm. Um, and so to say that we could go either way and we're like perfectly balanced in between two things that actually would take away your deciding power. Uh, it puts you in a state of what Jonathan Edwards called a liberty of indifference. Hmm. Um, and that does open up some mystery as to the origin of the fall, because you have to ask like, well, Adam didn't have a sin nature. So how did he lean towards sin? Um, and so you can either have mystery in regard to human nature in general, or you can have some mystery in regard to Adam. That's how I tend to think about it. <laughs> um, we, we understand how our hearts function now to an extent we feel it subjectively. We experience it. You do what you desire to do, which requires yeah. a nature. Um, and that makes sense of depravity and salvation. Uh, but there's a bit of a hole in our knowledge as to regards to the mechanics of the fall. Uh, mm -hmm. Arminians tend to stick to one definition of free will from Adam to now. Yeah. I would say, which uh, I think they don't see the inconsistency between that and saying they believe in a sin nature, I think. Um, so that's sort of an overview. Do you have some more to add to that? Um, so I have some notes. Um, I don't know if you're ready to get into like a definition, if you will, but, sure. um, I had taught through this at, um, our youth group at one point in time. So I taught through it, um, kind of thinking through how would a, a teenager want to hear this or need, need to broken down. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the way I approached it was just like they're adults because teens are not stupid. So, um, <laughs> pat myself on the back for that. Hey. Um, uh, this was just what I can, you know, came to as far as the definition, um, but I can't really claim a whole lot of authorship to it because it's probably heavily influenced by Sproul and Piper. Mm -hmm. um, Total depravity teaches that the effects of the fall are so serious that they affect the whole person, that every part of a person is tainted with sin, and this is going to show Sproul's influence. It shows us that we are radically corrupt. In fact, that's what R.C. Sproul uh, renamed total depravity in his his teaching on it is radical corruption. Every part of us has been corrupted by sin, and therefore with the inter with <clears throat> without the intervention of God's grace, we have no desire for God. Um, and I think that's kind of what you were getting at with some of the prevenient, was it prevenient grace or whatever you were Preven talking preven about? Prevenient grace prevenient is sort of... grace. Yeah, now I will say, Piper points this out, like both sides believe in, in a sense, both sides of the debate believe in prevenient grace because both believe grace needs to come first. Yeah. We, are, we tend to talk about it more in terms of Arminians because um, they see it as a universal reality, basically. Yeah. Um, everyone experiences prevenient grace. Uh, and so, therefore, there is that restoration of free will to mankind universally, whereas the Calvinist sees it because it's a definitive act. Yeah. Um, you see it as limited <clears throat> because uh, we're not universalists. Yeah. So it continues... Um, it doesn't mean we are as evil as we possibly can be. We recognize that there has been some people who are more evil than others. Uh, some, in comparison, seem like morally good people, common grace. 
The problem is because of depravity or the corruption of sin, even our good deeds are done from wrong motives. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's some scriptures as well that we can get to in a little bit. I know you said you had some scriptures, but um, one thing I just wanted to mention is like the difference between total depravity and utter, utter depravity is the idea that um, all humanity is as evil as possibly can be, which is, I think, kind of the characterization that some Arminianists paint our Calvinist uh, doctrine with, like, oh, you just think everybody's as evil as they can possibly be. That's not actually what we're talking about, um, because obviously that's not true. Um, there's common grace. There are people who do good things, but good deeds don't earn salvation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so something being corrupted isn't necessarily going to be as evil as it can possibly be, Though the one caveat to that is the most minor of sins, the smallest rebellion is worthy of damnation. Yeah. And I think Piper talked about this in a helpful way, I think, and that that sounds shocking to a lot of people. Uh, but it's because of a sort of a, a grading system that we have as humans of sin, which is partially right, but also very wrong. And that some Christians, uh, they'll take the teaching in James, for instance, that says uh, one who breaks one law is guilty of all. Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of what you're referencing. That's a biblical teaching. Um, uh, but we don't necessarily understand why that's true. It's not, and some Christians interpret it and say, oh, well, that means all sin is the same. Um, that's not true. And that like, there is different impact. There's there. I think there are different levels of seriousness, levels of how bad they are, but there's one, this is what Piper pointed out. There is one being against whom we are sinning. Yeah. Um, and that's the commonality between all sins. <clears throat> and that's why one, one of that, one of our sins separates us from God is because to sin against an infinite being is an infinite, an infinite offense. Um, and that's why it doesn't matter the degree of the sin. It is an affront to him. Um, and so in common grace, we can see again, like there are people for various reasons who have different levels of uh, good acts, but all of it outside of Christ is done out of relationship with God. Yeah. Um, and so any deed done out of right relationship with God is not done in faith and it's not done ultimately with the right motives. It's ultimately done with human centered motives, um, which is the biggest, which is the ultimate difference maker. Um so I think you're you're still continuing on in a, a bit of a um <clears throat> no that that's really what I had for the definition. Yeah. Um when I taught through this, I, I referenced a few scriptures and I, I did kind of have like a more um open floor discussion of free will, but um that's all I have really as far as a definition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think people get confused as to like the Calvinist does have this such a strong view that will say that we're not free to choose God, but it's, it feels unjust when stated in isolation because we're not, we're not necessarily defining what kind of freedom is lost. Uh, yeah. Again, this is where Piper was helpful to me, uh, but he was inspired by Edward's explanation. He talked about a difference between our moral abilities versus our natural abilities. Uh, and so when we hear we're not free to choose God, we think we get, you'll hear caricatures of, uh, Calvinism 
where they say, oh, so it's like God is uh, pushing you into a river and watching you drown and he won't save you even though you can't swim. You know, uh, but it's a, it's a, it, the illustrations are these physical, physically abusive acts from God where you have a desire in your heart to be saved. You have a desire in your heart to please God. You have a desire to respond to his calls to repentance, but he's turning you down uh, or he's, he's leaving you to physically drown. Um, but, or the illustration Piper used was uh, it's not like God is tying you to a chair and saying, get up. Um, that would be unjust because it's a physical inability while we have a desire to fulfill the command. What it's more like, uh, and again, this is uh, Piper's chair illustration completed. He said, it's more like the chair has a bunch of massage like uh, vibrations on it, and it feels really good to sit in it. Um, and nothing in you wants to get out of it. Um, yeah. And biblically speaking, like we tend to say like, if you're not physically bound, then uh, you're not morally bound either. But scripture does not assume that's the case. Basically, scripture assumes that there is such a thing as moral inability, where your inclination is so against the command that it can rise to a level of moral inability. And when something rises to a level of moral inability, it does not absolve responsibility. It actually intensifies it to that ultimate degree. Um. And basically, and at that point in the lecture, Piper goes, and if you can't buy that, if you don't believe that, nothing else in Calvinism will work for you. Right. Um, if you can't believe that there can be such a thing as moral inability, Calvinism will never make sense. It will never be just in your mind. Um, and that's, I think, one of the major stumbling, blo stumbling blocks for a lot of people. But another illustration I use is that I think I do think that this is something we know intuitively and do actually speak with this vocabulary outside of the context of this debate. Uh, and I like an illustration I'll use when I teach this is I'll look at like a dad and say, you got a little daughter. Uh, could you break her neck or something awful like that? All right. Um, and they're like, I'm like, look at you. Your, your arms are your strong guy. She's got that little, little body. You could, you could crush her. You could, couldn't you? And you, but there's two ways to answer that. Um, generally, a parent will say, I could never do that. Right. Th that's the can't that we have in relationship to God's moral commands to place our faith in him, to repent, to, uh, to trust him. I'm going to adjust our uh, bit rate because it's, uh, I think, causing some frame drops. Apparently, this is a... Uh, not quite as reliable as I would like it to be yet, but uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, video. Output. Yeah, we're going to drop to 4,500. See what that does. Okay, so um, what next? Do you have a little bit more to add, or should we tackle some scripture? How it, what, what would you think? Um, I, I think we could look at some scripture. Yeah, so where on earth do Calvinists get this crazy idea? <laughs> like I said, I think a lot of people might have some idea because, like I said, particularly if they're Christians watching, there is a shared uh, belief in the sin nature, but the extent of it 
I don't think many Christians have taken in the full ramifications of what a lot of scripture says. Um, so, uh, I have a few scriptures in mind. Uh, what do you have in mind? Yeah. So as we were talking about that before, you mentioned that same thought that, you know, a lot of the scriptures that all sides of this take really do emphasize sin, um, sin nature and things like that. So some of the scriptures I have are in line with that. Um, for instance, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, Matthew 15, 18 Actually, got and Romans 3 right here. <laughs> hey, hey, Matthew 15, 18 and 19. Um, I actually referenced this one already, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, A passage I read often to just show the extent of our sin is Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Can't jump to them all as fast as you're saying them, so I'll just get out of that. You're good, sorry. (laughs) Um, I'll just read actually verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, I think. Uh, maybe maybe I'll go a little further. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Um, I'll stop there. Um, I think that this passage not only shows the extent of sin, but I think it also kind of talks to the um, topic of moral ability. Um, you, you know, you talked about sitting in that chair and it's got massage um, heads or whatever you call those things. Um, we desired to stay within the the death of our trespasses. That was our that's our inclination before Christ. So yeah, I think one of the major things, like one of the major issues as we debate this oftentimes is that um those who would disagree with this, they kind of see sin not as a defining characteristic, but as like a tumor. Yeah. Uh it's like we've got we've got us and our desires over here, but then there's this thing over here. And that's why like uh, oftentimes, like when I've talked to people about this, it actually turns out that they, they have a lot more of an issue with God's damnation than they realized, even if they're Christians, in that um, they feel like the gospel is uh, an apology from God for having too uh, too high of a standard in the law. <laughs> It's like, yeah. that's really hard. It's impossible for you to do that. So now I'm going to give this lower standard of faith. Um, and therefore, once election comes in, it's like, oh, well, uh, unconditional election, which we'll get to in another week, um, next week, actually, uh, it feels even more unjust because mm. once you see sin as a tumor and not a defining actually uh, – blameworthy characteristic um then grace becomes sort of like your second chance that you were kind of owed because you couldn't do it yourself anyways yeah it's like you but you couldn't do it in the moral sense and so you're not off the hook for not being able to do it and that's like that's where the that's where the real conflict comes in in our thinking and where this needs to be parsed out um but like once again once unconditional election gets mentioned it's like oh but but wait because not everyone can do it he owes it to everyone yeah. Um, right. Ash says, God doesn't owe us anything. And that's the thing. I think 
Christians say that, but what I think this theological system puts in your face uh, is, uh, sorry, Sammy said something I wanted to read and I lost my train of thought. Let's see, Grace, what are your thoughts on standards you mentioned? What is the true meaning? The true meaning of grace. Oh, well, time to preach the gospel, sir. (laughs) Hey. Um, Grace biblically defined, well, it has a couple meanings. I mean, we're leading sort of right into it with this and that grace is the unmerited favor of God, the undeserved favor of God, but it's also the power of God to change someone. And so in Christianity, we see Christ as coming. Like we talked about this sin nature we're living in with Christ coming and um, saving us from um, potentially if we have faith in him. But again, it's not just, as we'll get to as we get into more of these doctrines, it's not just a potential thing. It's a, it's a sovereign thing. But um, we live in this sinful nature that we don't deserve to be saved from, but Christ came. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, you see this sacrificial system where people would put forth these sacrifices to appease the wrath of God. But Christ, what, what, the way it's explained in the New Testament is that these were all shadows and types, as it were, uh, leading up to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Christ, who took on that wrath from God on himself because he was the perfect sacrifice. He didn't have a sin nature like we did. And so he was able to gift his righteousness to us and take our punishment on himself. And so that is God's gracious act towards us. And so you can say there's that, that's the gracious act God does. And grace is also the saving power that changes our hearts to embrace what he did. Um, and it's also the power of the Christian experiences throughout their life to overcome the sin that ensnared us. You just read from Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, but today we're talking about specifically that sinful condition that required that act of grace from God. Right. But that's sort of the summarized definition of grace, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. As far as standards, um, I saw that was yeah mentioned in the question. What are your thoughts on the standards you mentioned? Um, and that I guess you could word it this way. Um, we keep using the word sin over yeah. and over. So what is what is the sin against? Well, it's against God's perfect righteousness and holiness and so what are the standards of that well it's it's complete perfection um in time after the fall god sent the law he gave it to moses um a follower of his and he gave him 10 commandments and uh he commanded israel to follow these things as well as some other laws for um ceremony and civil um type of living um but essentially it's boiled down in love god and love people but jesus when he shows up the son of god shows up he says in matthew 5 that you must be perfect as god is perfect and so the standards really what it boils down to the standard is be perfect but as we're showing because we're dead in our trespasses and sin um that feels like a crushing mountain upon us because man i could never be perfect Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not just try really hard. 
it's actually just be perfect like God is perfect. Well, I'm not. But Christ was and is because we believe he was raised from the dead. He is uh, perfect. And so as as Eric just said, his righteousness, his perfect obedience was imputed to us. It was given to us. And so now his perfection is our perfection again by grace. It's been given to us. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we kind of were able to, I think, integrate our definition here and show its relevance to the rest of the gospel. Um, And oftentimes, you know, people say, the gospel is good news. The Bible, that's what gospel means. Good tidings in scripture. But when we talk about a Christian or someone being saved, being we, so much of the teachings of Christianity have been watered down to the point that we don't know what we're being saved from. Yeah. Um, and that's what this episode's about. And yeah. I, I, I think the, the episode has turned out to be providentially, I suppose, uh, united in that theme because we talked about a movie that demonstrated depravity, although from a, I think a politically misguided perspective about what the cause and um, nature of sin is. Um, but, uh, but it still was a decent demonstration of like what happens as corruption grows in a person um, to a, to an extreme extent. Um, yeah. 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 Tying it back um, one more thread to the film. Yeah. You asked me towards the end of it, like, what, what do I say to a believer who's trying to process watching a film like that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think I, I was just reading through my notes that I used with the, the youth group, and one of the things I put in there, what are the results of total depravity? Um, and I have three three thoughts, and I think the last one actually ties back into what I would tell somebody to respond to that film with. Uh, first, we see our condition, and so we can see the beauty of God's. Oh no! Sorry, last sentence. <laughs> oh, my back. Yeah, you're back. So we see our condition, and so we can, so we can see the beauty of God's grace. So, um, by knowing our sinfulness and knowing that it is, it is radically corrupted our 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 condition. Um, our humanity, we can actually appreciate and and see the beauty of God's grace once we've received it. Um, mm-hmm. As well, knowing our depravity, this is number two, will strengthen relationships. I can recognize when I sin, and I can understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore I don't have to judge others so harshly. Um, I see my own um, state that I was saved out of, and so I'm not quite so um, harsh towards others when they sin against me. And the the last one, I think, is where it ties in. Knowing the depth of our corruption causes us to be less shocked by the sin in the world. So how does the Christian process a movie like that? Well, number one, uh, we recognize that it's not an outside force that has caused me to be corrupt, much like the character of Daniel or even the preacher. Um, it's not some outside force. It's an internal force. Um, so knowing the depth of that corruption um, can cause me actually to be less shocked by even the sin of the world in putting a movie out like that, that just seems to mock me and criticize me. And so I actually can kind of process it a little easier um, mm. and 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 even appreciate something uh, that is an excellent 
you know, technically, technically excellent film, even if the message uh, does maybe tackle some themes that are a little bit more personal. Um, and so, man, you know what? You know the reason why a director like that would make a film? It's the corruption of sin. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that helps me to be able to process something like that. Yep. There's like sin there and common grace there because it's a yeah. good movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like you see that image of God uh, coming out in inspiration to create. Um, that's sort of where that sort of internal conflict is that you, you know, political right-wing political pundits tend to, uh, I think rightly point out sort of that hypocrisy you see in Hollywood, but that's what sort of makes sense of it is that you see that like capitalistic pursuit of, uh, wealth in Hollywood. Um, but you see them, you know, creating, it is that sort of that creation mandate that sort of this, the image of God bringing that out in them, but then they're also intertwining they're confusing that criticism against capitalism, basically saying they see the corruption of human sin and greed uh, in a sort of a conflict. I think they're fighting in their own hearts as they do it, but they see that combination of the creation mandate, the combination of the desire to be creative along with the sin of it. And that, and out comes what they think is, you know, free markets themselves causing corruption when it's like, no, it's sinful human beings doing what God created them to do in the good sense, but the corrupted sense. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Ash says, isn't there a verse that says, and I'm going to butcher it. God causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the wicked. That's right. Yep. Uh, is that a proverb? Where is that? Uh, or is it causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked? Um, Let's see. Get your Bible program out. All right. <laughs> While I clear some notifications. Yeah, so I think it. I think it is the rain. The rain. Uh, yeah. The rain falling. Uh, yeah. Matthew five forty five. Well, how oh, about actually, that? you're right. Matthew five forty five says he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, yeah. and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So. Yeah. And, and what, what's the context of that statement? Because I've wondered, some, I've, I've heard that used to prove various things, but what was he trying to emphasize in that context? Yeah, let me, let me look yeah. at the broader context. So it's the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Um, and it's three verses right before he says, you therefore must be perfect. So let's look at it. Mm-hmm. You've heard it said, uh, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And -hmm. if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, I paraphrased that actually a couple weeks ago in a message um, to show the extent of the law, Mm -hmm. Um, because Jesus is saying this to Israel. He's preaching this sermon to Israel and and specifically to show the high, high standard of God's law. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's saying, you know, you basically have thought that it was just don't murder somebody, don't commit adultery, um, you know, love, love your neighbor. Well, he's saying it goes so far to say that don't get angry. 
Mm-hmm. Not just not just don't murder, don't get angry. Not just don't commit adultery, don't lust after a person. And not just love your friends, love your enemy as well. So um, I, I think the context of that one particular verse is to show, um, I don't know, I guess just that... Um, we're all we're all experiencing to some degree God's common grace of the rains falling, whether we're just or unjust. We're all experiencing yeah. that. Yeah. So I guess like the, that verse, like, accomplishes multiple things theologically, and that yeah, its original context seems to be, well, you can see it from its gospel context versus its law context. So like on the one hand, or on one level, it's addressing uh, a moral standard, saying mm-hmm. like. And using God as a moral example, basically, God does things for people that hate Him. So yeah, you, so you should, point. so you should too. So there's that example bit, but then it's also bringing the law, showing well we can't do that. We need grace, so there, it accomplishes that. Uh, but it also sort of does uh, show sort of the uh, common grace aspect of things as well. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, and we keep dropping frames here, so I'm just going to. Uh, Lower the bit rate a little more. Fortunately, I'm recording this all in the same quality, so the upload's going to look a lot nicer than the stream, I will say. <laughs> uh, but we'll drop right down to 3,000. So unfortunately, it would seem that this uh, new router I got is not helping much. Hmm. <laughs> oh, boy. So I might need to replace the modem, too, or I have no control over it. Who knows? We just got to <laughs> wait until it stops misbehaving. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, like, indirectly the verse does help uh be an example of common grace but i think its original intention was christ showing the uh the high standard of god's law but it also i think i mean like again we could talk about the third use of the law whatever um which is you know something that reformed folks debate uh how that works but like i think there is the gospel intention of christ's words showing you can't meet this standard you need grace but i think as saved people uh, under grace, there is uh, some good moral teaching there in that like, yeah, God is an example of someone who is, who loves his enemies. Um, so you can do the same. Um, so there is that. Yeah. So uh, what else? I mean, we're still sort of on the topic of total depravity. Anything else we want to clarify, bring up anything? Um, I feel like, I mean, I feel like we've given a pretty good definition to it and explained it in that regard. You know, maybe, um, maybe one, one thing that I think is important as we move towards the you, um, you mentioned it in passing. I think Piper said it, that if you don't understand this part of it, the total depravity, you're not going to get the rest of it. Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, I was just going to say, I think it serves as kind of a foundational element, uh, to the rest of it because, you know, if, if you think that you have enough agency, whether it's because of provenient grace or just because of, I don't know, maybe Pelagianism, um, mm-hmm. you think that you just have that agency, which, you know, I, I don't understand all of Pelagian's theology, so maybe he taught provenient grace as well. But he taught, I feel like... I think he basically denied, uh, I think, a shared nature with Adam. Yeah. I, I, I have to refresh 
a little i think i read something at some point where it was more clear on it but he either yeah. he either said grace is not necessary or he said that what grace is is just sort of the basic laws of how the world works and so you already have yeah. it basically you, yeah, and so i feel it's, like it's not a, it's not unmerited favor right yeah. i feel like his definition got essentially to the point where it really was as simple as making a decision like oh yeah. i just have to decide to go to heaven well he didn't yeah he didn't see he didn't think in terms of like fallenness and salvation he thought in terms yeah. of there was the mechanics of the universe God set up and he's already given you all the tools you need to walk in it. Yeah. Uh, and you're not like a fallen person needing to be redeemed. That wasn't how he thought. Yeah. Um, but he still had, I think a lot of that Christian vocabulary. Okay. But I think he saw Christ more as a moral example. I think. Yeah. 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 So essentially like, you know, I guess unless you're following after him, um, you're probably going to have some idea of this, but you're not going to, really see the rest of these doctrines unless you embrace the idea of really what we kind of described as the mechanics of it. Um, the lack of moral ability um, really, yeah, maybe I didn't word that correctly, but um, you can jump in after this. Um, moral moral you know, ability, yeah. Lack of moral ability, not lack of yeah. natural ability. Yeah. Right, yeah. The lack of moral ability. Um, you're not going to need... Uh, I think both our brains are fried on a Friday night. That's sort of how it's coming down to it now. But <laughs> but go ahead. Uh-oh. Now we're frozen. We'll come back. Ah! I think I think we died on his end before. Yep. There you are. Sorry. I think it was funny cuz I I, I, I think you lost us before we lost you cuz we saw you go. Ah. <laughs> did you did you actually see that yeah <laughs> nice funny. i was like oh come on <laughs> at least you didn't like drop an f-bomb or something you know? <laughs> <laughs> and next we week know, we'll be we talking know about you grace. do that when no one's looking <laughs> <laughs> well we'll be talking about grace when caleb's not here <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but uh all that to say all that to say it, it is a foundational element so as we move into the next ones you know it it's by no accident that this is first yeah in in line here yeah and again i want to emphasize that like again the impossibility of feeling the justice of the rest of the points if this is not in place because yeah if you again if you cannot reconcile in your mind or at least embrace the biblical like i should actually just to nail this home i don't think we t touched on this but uh let me search it on the bible here before i switch over um while caleb comes back <laughs> it's okay i'm the one talking so no big deal yeah and, i have no uh, idea what you just said um so i was gonna say just to nail this home um because there's one there, there's like the two ways in which you kind of need to see this um <laughs> not you guys the f-bomb right um she's so saying <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, there's the sense in which there's the logic of this, but then there's the biblical grounding of this. And so I've I pointed out, like, logically you need to see, or at least uh, by faith embrace, <clears throat> that this is a just thing, that there is such a thing as moral inability um, for this to make sense. But 
uh, obviously, if I'm going to insist that you embrace that, I should demonstrate more decisively where Scripture speaks in terms of ability and not just unwillingness, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Although I'd say it's an extreme form of unwillingness still, if you think biblically about it. But let me see here. Yes, it's Romans 8. Um, read full chapter, please, because we need context. All right, so here we are. Yes, Romans 8. Uh, we'll scroll down a bit. Now, I do want to point out here, if you read the full chapter here, some people talk see this contrast Paul is drawing between... Um, uh, walking in the spirit versus the flesh. And they think it's strictly talking about encouraging the Christian. Uh, don't do fleshly things, do, you know, spiritual things, walk in the spirit, not the flesh. And like, there's a sense in which there's some teaching you could give to a Christian on that in terms of fixing their mind on the right things. But in context, I think you can see here, that's not what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is the contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. Um, uh, let's see, where does he start? He condemns sin in the flesh in order to the righteousness requirement of the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot and that's where we get the ability extreme in the doctrine of total depravity. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And why can't they please God? And so oftentimes, again, like the Arminian has sort of a filter for this verse where they'll say, well, they can't please God unless they're in Christ, but they can choose to be in Christ. But that's not the, that's not the kind of can't. It's not just you can't because you're not connected to Christ. It's you can't because you don't want Christ. And so in other words, there's no lifting your up, yourself up by your own bootstraps in that sense to fix that. Because uh, that's what you would be doing. You'd be, you'd be producing a desire from a heart that by nature does not produce that kind of desire. And uh, we, talked about, um, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, I don't know where Doug Wilson got it from, but I like how he's had when he's talking about regeneration preceding faith. Again, we talked about that when we talked about Mike Winger. He, uh, Doug Wilson put it, how, why do I need, um, if, if I can believe and repent with my old heart, why do I need a new one? Right. Um, the point is, the point is we cannot, because in the ultimate sense, we will not. And that has risen to the level of moral inability. And so I think the vocabulary Paul uses drives home. I think the Calvinistic definition of total depravity. Um, so yes, there's, there's my final scriptural proof, as it were. Um, so, yeah. Any, any, any final thoughts on all that? Nope. I'm good. All right. So next week, if the uh, schedule stays consistent, unless I get nailed with an overtime <laughs> shift. Which I think I have well, enough overtime planned for a while, and it's not on Friday. I, so I'm, we'll, have to, we'll have to connect. <laughs> we'll have to connect? I may have something. You may have something for it. Okay. In that I absolutely do have something. <laughs> oh, you've got something in a week? Okay, well, yeah. either either we'll skip a week or we'll adjust it by a day or something. Okay. Thursday night or Saturday night or something like that. But we'll talk. Um, so, yes. So, that's a good warning, I guess, to everyone. Perhaps we'll have a different day <laughs> this coming week, which is fine. Um, and so, until then, 
Thank you, Caleb, for the conversation. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I think I did. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we might be, we've been talking about it, but uh, I'll stick it. I'll keep you on the line, but we're, we're thinking um, about making a little commercial for the, for the channel, but we'll, <laughs> we'll see about it. Um, but anyways, uh, that'll definitely end up on the channel if it happens, but we're making it probably more to advertise to our church so we can get more people in the chat. <laughs> So you can have some people to socialize with Ash because it's mostly been you and uh, like Dragon Fist, although he wasn't here. We had Sabby here. Sabby, if you're still here, thank you for showing up. It's much appreciated. Um, and uh, I hope you learned something about Jesus. Hope it was helpful. Yeah. If you want to talk more about Jesus, that's what I love to talk about. So, yeah. Uh, all right. So thank you, Caleb. And we will see you all around in the next one. Thanks for hanging out.